Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Frankie Wood Black. Uh, she's on the faculty at Northern Oklahoma College. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, chemical health and safety and the Toxic Substances Control Act, known as TUSCA, uh, environmental regulations, etc. So, Frankie, thanks for coming. Glad to be here. Yeah. It's probably easy and maybe obvious, but why um, why are you involved in regulating toxic substances? Why is it important to you? Well, um, historically, when I first started in industry, I actually went to industry before I went back to teaching in academia. I worked in um, dealing with water and the Clean Air Act and dealing with chemicals and their introduction into, into the marketplace. And the Toxic Substance Control Act, which has now been changed a little bit over the past couple of years um, into, it's morphed a little bit, was started way back when, you know, during about the time that EPA and they um, worked with the, how, how we regulated chemicals like asbestos and lead and those types of things because we found out that those environmental exposures were causing health hazards and caused both environmental and public health hazards. And when that first regulation went in, industry went in to talk about chemicals in commerce, which is what Toxica really was looking at is how did we introduce chemicals into commerce. And part of my initial work, even though I started in polymers and in chemicals and I worked for in the refining industry for many, many years, when we were dealing with how those chemicals went into trade and how people used them, um, those environmental regulations became very important. And over the years, it's become even more and more important as we understand more about how we use chemicals in our everyday lives, how materials are used at home, what are their intent to be used. And so chemical, chemical health and safety is not only about how do we control it from the manufacturing side, it is truly a life cycle thing from discovery to implementation to use and ultimately disposal. Yeah, that's a, a question. Um, I've spoken to some people about you know, various regulations, but from what I understand, a lot of processes, and there's tens of thousands of chemicals out there, maybe hundreds of thousands. So how do you know what to regulate? How can regulation even address all the possible chemicals out there? I know, you know it's important to um, regulate lead and asbestos and many other chemicals, but what do you do with all the other ones? Like, How do you even account for them? Well, that's what the interesting thing when they did that, what they called the Tosca reboot several years ago, that while we know of tens of thousands of chemicals and even those chemicals, because everything's a chemical and there's chemicals in nature and nature makes chemicals. And so there's things that we don't necessarily know. But when it comes down to what's in commerce, the chemicals that we use to make our everyday products, the chemicals that are used um, in our, that we, ha we have, that list really is actually 
pretty small. And the EPA has what's known as the toxic substance control list. And those are the list of all the chemicals that are in commerce. And part of the reboot of the regulation was to actually go through that list and look at what chemicals were currently being used. So if you look at the, the universe of chemicals, which is, which is what we have all around us, the plants make them, bugs make them, um, you know, we have all the ones that our own bodies use to, to work with. Those aren't necessarily in commerce, but when we're working with industry, industry manufacturers for certain products. And, and in those chemicals, we definitely do know more about what those are, what are intended, and that's what the regulatory process is actually designed for. For example, if you were to make a new chemical, all right, so let's say I'm making something that's new. Um, and the one thing about the Toxic Substance Control Act that's different than say what everybody's seeing right now in terms of medication, the Food and Drug Administration regulates those chemicals that are gonna be into drugs that you actually use as a drug. And that's not covered under the Toxic Substance Control Act. They're actually focused more on the chemicals that are used to make products. So if you come up with a new chemical, and sometimes they aren't even really new chemicals. For example, um, with the bio biofuels industry and the biofuel stuff, we've known about certain biofuels for many, many, many years. But when Tosca was at, enacted in the, in the 80, 70s and 80s, in the 1970s and 1980s, those biofuels weren't in commerce, so they didn't get put on the list. Well, now as people are using those biofuels that people knew about, in order to actually sell them, you have to make sure that that chemical is on the list, and EPA has a chance to review the data that's known about that chemical before it's allowed to go into commerce. So, so there's kind of two sides to that coin, one side is when they first put the list together, they put all the chemicals that were on the, that people were manufacturing in commerce with the idea that they would go back and look at those materials and how those materials are impact our environment, impact our health. And then the, how to look at and introduce new chemicals to the list, which you have a lot more control over. Even if you have a list of all the, um, you know, the chemicals they have a list of, I mean, it, I don't know, I would think it would take hundreds and hundreds of studies to figure out how they'd impact people. So I, I can't imagine that they have a really complete understanding of a lot of them. Maybe a few real bad actors that are prevalent, but a lot of them, I mean, how do they determine to the amounts that are safe and not safe? I mean, I just don't understand how this could possibly be studied to the point where it's, it's really accurate. Well, and that's, that's what, where one of the areas that I'm currently working on and, and going back as an educator because one of the career fields that people don't necessarily know about that are very, very important are those individuals that are actually looking at chemical health and safety and industrial toxicology and industrial hygiene. When the European Union a number of years ago enacted their version of TOSCA, which is really interesting, the US had, had a version of TOSCA many, many years before the European Union did. But when the European Union put in their version, um, they found that they didn't have enough industrial toxicologists in order to actually do the reviews that they wanted to do. But one of the things that works in our favor for example, um, you have classes of chemicals. 
okay? We know an awful lot about a certain class of chemical because that class of chemical is going to have certain characteristics associated with them. For example, straight chain hydrocarbons. Well, we know a lot about straight chain hydrocarbons because we've been using straight chain hydrocarbons. Those are things like um, hexane, pentane, butane, those are straight chain hydrocarbons. And because they're all, it's very much like looking at a periodic table, everything in a column in the periodic table is going to have some similar properties. So those classes of chemicals are gonna have similar properties, which allows us to do, you know, you're kind of like doing a sieve of, you look at the big rocks, and then you can get finer and finer and finer down to the other ones. Yes, we know that there's gonna be changes associated with certain, certain levels, but we do know that a class of chemicals is gonna behave in a certain way. And, and by looking and grouping those classes of chemicals, you can get an initial idea of what kinds of studies need to be done, do those studies need to be there. And a lot of the studies, have been, you know, have been done over time, but again, the list of chemicals is in commerce is much, much smaller than that universe of chemicals. If you were to pick up a Sigma Aldrich catalog or, or one of the chemical catalogs that people use for research, a lot of those chemicals aren't in commerce. Those are used for research purposes. And so the people who are researchers are supposed to be knowledgeable about the materials that they use, and they're supposed to use certain precautions. And we do more, a, a deeper dive into how those chemicals work or how those chemicals should be in the environment and how those chemicals should be used. So all those warning labels that you see on, on materials, that's designed that we've looked at this material for this specific application. And that's why we tell people don't go off the label of how that material is supposed to be used. So if you're going to the hardware store and you're looking at your material, there are warning labels because people have evaluated that material for that type of use. They haven't evaluated yeah. it for some other use. I can picture it, yeah, not intended for, you know, for other uses. Yeah, I can picture some of the labels and the things they say, and now it makes more sense why they would say that. Yeah, and that's what's really important because, because when, when you put a chemical on the list or you petition to put a chemical on the list, you're really looking at it, I'm intending it for it to be this kind of use. And a lot of the chemicals that are on the list, never a, public, a person in the public would never get because they're used as an intermediate to make another product. So they're used as an industrial chemical only. So it's like an ingredient in to make another material and it's not something that you can go or you're gonna interact with on a, on a public basis at any time. So uh, as of today, you know, in 2020, what are some of the most important chemicals that need to be looked at and addressed that are really prevalent in commerce that, you know, that can affect people significantly? Well, actually, I really don't, I don't have that list because that's not where my area of expertise is right now is looking at, the, at those materials. The EPA has a list of chemicals of concern and okay. that is periodically reviewed and it's in the federal register and you can look at those, but I just don't know those off the top of my head because what I'm doing now these days is I'm trying to get students ready to understand how these regulations come about and what career paths those students would have in 
in order to do the research to get there and what education levels that they need. Because, because where I work, I, I teach fundamental science now. I teach, I, I actually work with freshmen and sophomore students and we're trying to get them to a career path. And even though students come and they say, well, I want to be a medical doctor or I want to be a physician's assistant or I want to be a nurse. And you start looking at, well, that's a finite career path, but there's all of these other career paths that students have an opportunity to get. And those, those things like industrial hygiene and industrial toxicology become very, very important. So if we take what's going on in our world today, you know, we live in the world of, of this new pandemic, but think about what those chemical toxicologists and those chemical hygienists have had to deal with. All of your disinfectants, all of your soap, all of your cleaners, remember right at the beginning of March, EPA and, and a lot of us were working with, well, what's the, what's the list of approved cleaners for approved situations? You know, I'm, you're not necessarily going to use the same cleaner in your house that you would in, in an industrial workplace or you would in a multi a multi-story office building. Um, how are the people who are using those cleaners going to be have the appropriate personal protective equipment or PPE so that they can use that cleaner safely? So when they talk about, uh, you know, they talked about this deep cleaning. Well, some of those some of those cleaners aren't intended to be used every day. They're intended to be used once a week. Oh, and no, so you yeah, have I've to. Gotten, I've gotten rashes from places they say they've cleaned but they've cleaned it so much that it's it's like horrible for your skin and, and and that's one of the things we know that some some people are sensitive to certain cleaners you know that's just the, that's just the you know everybody's a little different and and now you know one of the things that a lot of us worry about is is or like hand sanitizers well the hand sanitizers contain 60 to 70 percent alcohol well, if you're using a hand sanitizer every hour, that alcohol is going to dry out your skin and it's going to create an irritation. And, and, when, and then there was an alert about, about three weeks ago about certain hand sanitizers that, you know, there was a recall on them because, you know, that people were trying to deal with it because they had methanol in them. And methanol is a poison. And that's, that's that old wood grain alcohol that people worried about the moonshiners having, that if you drank it, that it was poisonous. Well, because people were trying to produce so much of the, of the hand sanitizers, they weren't doing a proper distillation and some of the materials got, or got the contaminated with methanol. And those are the kinds of things that I try to help students identify to say, all right, you know, these are things that uh, a, an industrial hygienist is going to look at, an industrial toxicologist is going to look at. Those of us in the area of chemical health and safety have been reviewing materials for masks. We've been reviewing the materials for cleaning. We've been reviewing the materials for how are they going to be used. We've been looking at the personal protective equipment. Not all gloves are created equally. Some gloves will allow certain chemicals to pass through, which is why we have a myriad of glove types. You know, if you go to the doctor's office, it's one type of glove. If you go, if you go to go get a cleaner, you'll find 
I can get a nitrile glove. I can get a glove that contains latex. I can get a traditional big black rubber glove. And all of those are designed to work with different materials, which is again, another reason why you wanna read the label of any product that you're using because you don't wanna improperly mix them because um, we saw early on that the rate of poisonings went up because people were mixing bleach and ammonia. That's a bad chemical reaction that individuals can poison themselves by improperly mixing bleach with other household chemicals. And so you've got to be very careful when you're working with whatever label that's in there. And that's the area that, you know, I work a lot in is kind of bringing the bringing an understanding of what we use in our everyday lives to make sure that it's properly used. We use the proper personal protective equipment and we educate people about those warning labels are there for a reason. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So yeah, what are some common things, uh, common pieces of advice that you could offer? You said don't mix bleach and ammonia. What happens if you do and why? And maybe a, a few other common, you know, don't do's. Well, the, if, when you bleach, when you mix bleach, and there's a whole list of things you don't mix bleach with. You don't it, it, bleach is, um, and and the list will say, you know, that you don't mix it with ammonia. You don't mix it with things like Drano. You don't mix it with things like Liquid Plumber. You don't mix it. So you you've got to be very very careful with bleach because what happens is you end up with a chemical reaction that creates chlorine gas and chlorine gas is poisonous. And that's, and it's a common, and that's a common thing that people have seen. You'll see probably, you know, even before the pandemic occurred, you'll see several times there'll be an industrial accident where, or, and actually it would be in a restaurant, it would be somebody's cleaning and they improperly mixed bleach with something else and they would create this toxic gas that and and summertime you'd sometimes see it because you would see it where people were using bleach in swimming pools and again it got mixed with an improper uh, and another another chemical and you produce the chlorine gas so bleach even though it's common and people are familiar with it you've got to be very careful not to improperly mix it with another with another material um, because you can create this toxic gas and that's the, the other thing that you want to also look at, and people have seen this before, a lot, of, a lot of the materials that people use for home improvement projects, um, that they, they work with those, you know, there's a whole host of them. If you're not using it in a well-ventilated area, it can cause, you're, you're overexposing yourself to the chemical. What we look at for industrial exposures is what they call a time-weighted average. And that's, and there's a whole, then they publish lists of these time-weighted averages for, to make sure that people aren't overexposed to a particular material. And you can, you can want to make sure that you're not getting exposed because things that have volatile organic carbons in them, which is one of the reasons why you can't no longer buy a paint can um, that you can no, no longer buy a paint cans without an ID because they have volatile organic carbons in them, which would give people a lightheadedness, especially if they abused them. And that's, that's one of the things that you have to look at. 
So there's lots of materials. That's what the warning labels on the on your can is going to was going to say. Um, people talk about the glues, for example, will also have vapors associated with them. They'll tell you to work with some of the some of the glues in an in a well ventilated area because you don't want to overexpose yourself to those certain um, volatile organic carbons that you can smell. And, and an idea for, you know, common people that will understand a volatile organic carbon, when you go fill up your gas tank and you can smell that gasoline, that's a volatile organic carbon. So, okay. Wait, wait. All right. So when you fill up your gas tank, any best practices there? Obviously, don't, like, deliberately inhale the fumes. Should you start the gas running and then walk a few paces away? Like, any recommendations there? Well, the, the, for gas, don't deliberately inhale the fumes. Yeah, you know, that's that's really, and for most people, because you're filling up your gas tank occasionally and you're outside, not a big, not a big issue. The big things that people talk about for gasoline this is the reaction to having those gasoline vapors. So if you're in an area like a, a city where they have air quality days, um, of course, you don't want to have those vapors released in the atmosphere because that's going to generate smog. Uh, so they tell you there's, there are certain times of the day that they want you to fill up your tank so that you don't produce those smog chemicals. Um, and that's because so, you want to minimize the number of vapors. And depending on where you are, a lot of gas stations, like if I'm in California, they have those vapor recovery hoses on them. So that you're not necessarily getting those vapors and those vapors aren't being released into the atmosphere. But a lot of the country, you don't have that. Um, but that's just, a, that's just an, a, an example of a volatile organic carbon. Okay. Um, so in terms of the, uh, the people that you teach and then the possible careers, what are some of them? And, you know, what are the, like, some of the daily things that a person in that career would do? What would they work on? Well, in chemical health and safety, you can work on a variety of, of tasks. Um, like I said, I did air. I did. I worked with water. I worked with air. Um, some people work in classifying waste and making sure waste are, pot, are, are disposed of. One of the beautiful things about working in chemical health and safety is you're not necessarily doing the same thing every day um, because you're evaluating what's happening on the plant floor or you're evaluating what's happening in, in your area. Um, so for example, when everything started with, with this COVID, um, COVID-19 aspect, people, we were, we all of a sudden were looking at, well, what cleaners do we use? How do folks, how do folks interact with each other? Um, how, you know, what kind of personal protective equipment are we going to have to look at? So, you know, our jobs changed overnight. Some, some folks are going to be very more, a lot more specific. They're going to be evaluating for, for different aspects. You can, you know, if I'm at a machine shop, I may be the person that's looking at particulate matter associated with sandblasting and grinding. I may be looking at emissions from the different machinery that's, that are there. Um, maybe looking at, you know, you know, temperature, just heat and heat exhaustion. A lot of times the industrial hygienist is going to be looking at, well, does this building cool enough? Are we getting enough air exchanges in the building um, for, to make sure that the folks don't, don't have a heat, heat stroke or we're going to implement policies associated with it? Um, even, even in your career where you're dealing with stuff, we deal with ergonomics. 
is my workstation set up so that I don't create carpal tunnel? Or now we got to talk about desks that are where you stand up in order to minimize sitting all day. We look at eye strain on our computers. We look at um, we, we look at a number of different tasks. So that's kind of the career path for a chemical health and safety person, an industrial hygiene person, an environmental person. They can go at it from a number of different ways. You can go at it from the biology aspect. So if you were to go to school and you would follow a pre-medical route, that will take you to one area of, of this work. I'm actually a PhD physicist. I did both theoretical and experimental work, but I worked in chemical physics. I looked at very small particles. So I actually was working in nano before nano was something. And, and I ended up working in an industry and I spent 25 years in industrial refineries. I was in a refinery. And so I, my career path came from a very different route and I worked with water because of, because I was dealing with small particles. I was looking at how do we make sure the water stays clean? What kind of water treatments do we do? How do we minimize um, things getting into the water so that we don't have to clean it up so much? And that was kind of where my research area started. And then I ended up in environmental and then I had a lot more fun in the plants than I, than I ever did as a researcher on a, on a day-to-day basis working in research because that plant environment is a new world every day and it was really a lot of fun. So Yeah, I worked at a refinery 20 years ago in the, what they call the HSCQ, Health, Safe, and Environmental Quality. We had like smokestack emissions and water treatments, you know, bioponds and all kinds of stuff. It was pretty cool. Yeah, and that's exactly the kind of work I started in. And then, and just because, because of where I was working, I started working with, well, if we're working in a research environment, we have to look at the new chemicals that we're producing and we have to follow those along. And that's how I got involved in Tosca and sustainability. And then I came back and did a number of other research activity or re- both research and industrial activities associated with that and came back. So the career paths, you can come at it from a number of different ways. And we're in, and that's one of the things that we want students to know is that that basic degree in science, whether it be biology, physics, chemistry, can open up a, a whole variety of different career fields. And most people don't know those career fields exist. You know, if you tell, if you tell a student, well, have you considered industrial toxicology? Have you considered industri- industrial hygiene? Have you considered safety? Um, they go, well, I, I don't know. I said, well, somebody's out there looking out for the safety of, of the folks that are, that are at work. And, and any large company is going to have a safety person. A lot bigger companies are going to have industrial hygienists that they work with. And even smaller companies are going to look at, well, I've got to go out and monitor the sound level of my equipment so that people don't lose their hearing. All of that comes in through, you know, regulation started it, but this has been going on since the early 1900s, trying to make the workplace safe for workers. Yeah, a lot of people don't think about these positions. Um, quick question about regulation. Do you think regulation is adequately addressing all the issues out there? Or do you think it's lagging? You know, what's your overall sense of things? Well, when I was actually working and, and, and doing compliance work and making sure that compliance work is there, it, 
we get a kind of a, it's, it's kind of a catch 22. Uh, we need regulation to an extent, but sometimes when you get regulation, the regulation actually becomes a hindrance. And, and in other cases, because of how the myriad of regulations have occurred, you've got regulations that contradict each other. So I am not necessarily in, in favor of rolling back regulations. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that say, well, we need to roll back. The big challenge that we all faced uh, is that how fast regulations were coming out and trying to be able to comply so that we understood what the unintended consequences were. And, and that's been a real challenge. I can give you some examples where they, you know, that you can go back historically and look at how regulations caused us to do something, but then we ended up with another problem. If, we're, if you go back and recall MTBE, we put in MTBE into gasoline to, to eliminate an air pollution, an air pollution issue, but we ended up creating a water issue. And, and part of that was lack of knowledge at the time. And they were trying to do a, a, a fix fairly quickly. And we ended up creating another problem that we had to clean up. We're seeing similar things in terms of air where we're trying to clean smokestacks and smoking, uh, you know, the, the emissions into the air. And you're using scrubber technology and you're using that. And the chemicals that we look at for that technology work great, wonderful, and, and that all makes sense. But later on, when you're purifying water for drinking, that then you end up creating a potential hazard because you're chlorinating some chemicals that and ultimately may be making some toxins. So we don't have a really good handle on the downstream effects. You know, so you create, you fix one problem, but you may have created another problem. There were times... So once, uh, once regulations are in effect, it sounds like they need to be reviewed and revised and seeing if there's conflicts and if they're really working as intended. Does, does that happen regularly? And are they revised? Or once they're in place, that's it? You know, they, it takes years to undo them. And, and usually what happens, it takes years to undo them. And part of it is it takes a while to see the unintended consequence. Um, you know, the unintended consequence may not necessarily be obvious, and, and that's a challenge. And the other challenge is when you're creating a regulation, you know, we tend to create a regulation for a specific intent. And, and when you really go out and apply that across the board, that, that intent doesn't necessarily fit. It's like you make one tool, but it's, so you, you make a regulation and let's use the example that that regulation is a screwdriver. Well, you try to apply a screwdriver to all those similar problems, but sometimes you need a wrench, not a screwdriver. Well, are there like, is there a form of clinical trials for regulations? It seems like that might be a good idea is to, okay, test them out first. And, 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 and some cases there have been, but it's not like a clinical trial. For example, um, you know, historically, let's say industry has had an accident. And rather than regulating industry, the industry group that had the accident implemented some common standards and common practices across that industry that said, hey, if we do this as an industry, we won't have to have a regulation. 
and we when we've learned from our accident and we can see whether or not that worked and in those cases that's great i mean um you know if you've had an explosion and we now build control rooms that protect the the protect the operators because in the control room because we've increased the safety of those control rooms and ultimately then maybe you can you know if if that works then you could probably codify it in a regulation or hopefully you don't have to codify it in a regulation because industry uses it a best practice but that's one of the challenges that we have is a lot of times regulation even though there's a lot of comment in there that, that industry has an opportunity to comment industry has an opportunity to to work with it you have your you have your public folks that are making comments as well the challenge is what seems good for for one aspect may not necessarily work in another aspect and that's always been a dilemma and that's the dilemma with regulations all the way around which regulations seem to stick there and be unchangeable and get in the way of doing things maybe in a better way? Like, is it the real old ones that are hardest to get rid of? Or you know, which ones have you noticed are the biggest problems? Well, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's actually just the process of how we regulate. It's not so much an old regulation, because some of the old regulations are some of the best. Um, you know, that it's, it's, it's the process of just the, just the time that it takes to get a regulation through and the time of implementation of those regulations. And, and then making sure that, that, that people understand what those are. Sometimes it, the, the ones that cause the most trouble, at least in my experience, and, and where I've worked, and of course I've only worked in a very, very narrow area of regulation, that are the ones that happen very, very quickly, that we've implemented right away. Because in those cases, people haven't had a chance to think through what are the unintended consequences. You know, I, I'll give you for I give you for instance. I just wrote a piece about safety and security. So we industry put out card key access, and this happened. You know, you know, it, like in the 1980s, we had card key access to rooms and buildings, and the initial idea behind that card key access was to know where our employees were or to know where people were in the event of an accident so we could make sure did we get everybody out you know if there was a fire did we get everybody out if there was a, a release did we get everybody out well now we use card key access for a variety of things one is just to get into the building <clears throat> some of it is to prevent people from getting into a space where they might get hurt but we did that and we did electronic door locks but nobody necessarily thought what happens if the power goes out and the doors lock and your only access to the door is to uh, use that card key, but the door is now locked and you can't get out. Those things, you know, so what thing, and, and, and if you do a regulation very fast, you don't have a chance to think through, well, if we have that situation, maybe we don't want the doors to automatically lock maybe we want the doors to stay unlocked but then that creates another set of hazards that you have to think about uh, so those are the things that you kind of have to kind of work through with a regulation so if a regulation is short you know that the time frame is very short you don't have an opportunity to think through how did that you know what are those unintended things that you have happen 
What are those? Yeah, like these, uh, these face mask requirements, people breathing <laughs> in fibers and maybe uh, having low oxygen or high carbon dioxide, or that was put in place with no thought, no real experimentation, nothing. Who knows what that's going to do? But you know, no one cares. So. Yeah, and those, and you have, you know, there are some people that the face masks are contraindicated because they have conditions that you know wearing a tight fitting face mask is not necessarily the thing to do. Um, there are alternatives. For example, they have these universal face shields. Maybe that's an appropriate alternative, but, but you have to kind of think through, well, what is it that we want to do? What is the intent of this regulation? And what, you know, how do we balance that with making sure people, people are safe making sure that people stay well, they, you know, they, they go, you know, health-wise, they go to work and come home in the same condition that they are. But you also have to think through, well, gee, if we do this, what, what are the consequences down the road? And that's, that's one of the challenges that we've had to, had to deal with. Yeah, so what you do is very, very important. And especially recently, we can see the possibility for, uh, for lots of unintended consequences because, Things have been adopted so quickly. So, yeah, it makes sense. And that's one of the things that, you know, the drug trial people are, are really struggling with is because people are trying things and, and you're going, uh, you know, we, don't, we have no idea what the long-term health effects are, you know, and that's, that's one of the challenges that we have. And drug regulations and pesticide regulations are all handled under a different set than, than EPA and the Toxic Substance Control Act. And that's also a challenge. And I can give you a, a very good, for instance, on, on a particular thing that almost everybody has that's regulated under both food and drug and our chemical aspect. Oh, baking what is that? Soda. Baking soda. If you look at a baking soda box, it will have an FDA label. And it will have its regular chemical label as well, because baking soda is used across the board for a lot of different things. And it's actually, it actually has two different types of labels on a baking soda container. Huh. Oh, because it has two, two very different kinds of uses. So it's regulated by those two entities. Exactly. Hmm. Quite interesting. Well, very good, Frankie. We're, we're just about out of time, but uh, I'm glad I spoke to you. What's the best way for people to find out more about these careers that you're talking about, you know, what's uh, involved in them and, uh, you know, to get in touch if they have questions. Oh, they, they can look at the American Chemical Society. Um, they have lots of things. I would recommend a couple of the job sites. Um, for example, Glassdoor usually has some really good information about career paths and where those career paths are and the numbers along those, along those lines. Um, you know, a lot of the different colleges and universities will have information on the different career paths, but your trade organizations, um, your, your, um, your, your job search sites will have career path type information, and that's always a good place. But the American Chemical Society also has lots of good information. Well, very good. Thank you. Thank you for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. And if you have any questions, holler at me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? 
Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.